The flood's a bit of a troubling story, isn't it? I mean, there's a whole lot of reasons that people find this passage a little bit tricky. I mean, scientifically, some people will find it quite troubling. People might have issue with, well, how did Noah actually fit every species on the face of the planet on a boat that size? Or some people might have trouble with the idea of this flood actually being global, given the scientific evidence at hand. The the flood story is scientifically troubling for some. It's also theologically troubling. And the idea of a good God killing all humans... Uh, That should make you at least a little bit uncomfortable. And so, friends, as we start this passage this morning, I want to say it's okay for you to be troubled by this passage. If you're here and you're reading that and it actually makes you really uncomfortable, that's okay. If you read the details of this and you struggle to believe them, that is okay. But too often what we do is we sit over Scripture. We make ourselves the judge of Scripture. We decide what in Scripture is true or false, or what is good or not good. Let's remember that that's, that's the sin of Adam and Eve, isn't it? They decided, instead of God, what was good and evil. And so as we approach God's Word, we want to make sure that we don't do that. It's okay to be troubled, but let's still let God talk to us. And so in these three chapters, you might have lots and lots of questions about it, but God has some even bigger questions for you. And so we're going to consider this passage under six headings. If you've grabbed a handout, you'll see them on the back. The Lord sees, the Lord grieves, the Lord decrees, the Lord warns, the Lord destroys, the Lord preserves. And then we're going to see at the end of how all this applies to us as God asks us some very serious questions from this story. Uh, And so I'm going to pray for us pray that God would actually speak to us through his word as we trust that he will. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, as we uh, sit under your word, as we hear you speak to us, we read a troubling story, one that many of us will have heard many times, but may still be confusing, may still be uncomfortable. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to believe your word. We pray that you would help us to understand from it what you want us to understand. And Lord, as we are confronted with your judgment, as we are asked difficult questions of our own lives, Lord, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, work in us so that we may find your answers. Grow us through your word, we pray this morning. In the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Let me catch up. Oh. I don't know where we are in the slides. Don't worry about it. All right, back in Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth, didn't he? And what did he do? He saw that it was good. We, we, we had that repeated refrain. God saw that it was good. And after creating humans, the highlight of his creation, what God saw... That it was very good. Well, chapter 6 of Genesis begins with God seeing again. He looks again, but this time things are not good. Have a look, because in chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord... 
saw, sorry, the Lord saw, Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. Further down in verse 11, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. Previously, when God looked at his creation, he was delighted with it. He saw that it was good. It was filled with beauty, with goodness, with everything humans needed to enjoy life with their creator. But now God looks again and sees wickedness, corruption, violence, people with hearts that are naturally inclined towards evil, people who have corrupted their ways. When God looked at his creation, he saw a world that had been increasingly consumed by sin. Like weeds in your garden that grow out of control. Like mold in a bathroom that hasn't been looked at in a while. Like mice in the outback. Sin had entered God's world and spread. It had overcome the whole thing. And we've seen that downward spiral into sin throughout Genesis, haven't we? We began with Adam and Eve who were tempted into sin, deceived into rebelling against God. Because God's way, the way of life, the way God designed humans to live was to love God and to obey God. To put it another way, God's way was for humans to have hearts that were inclined towards him. But Adam and Eve corrupted their way. Their hearts were inclined not towards God, but towards themselves. As they allowed their own desires for authority, for freedom, to outweigh God's desires. Adam and Eve's sin began the downward spiral of evil. Then their own son becomes a murderer. Lamech boasts about his violence. The sin of the world gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And with each generation, sin takes over. There is more violence, more wickedness, more corruption. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of his people had become. And in verse 6, we see that God cares about that. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Now we need to be careful with the idea of God regretting because when you and I regret something, well, we do it because we don't know the outcome of our actions or we just make mistakes. When you and I regret Well, we decide that if we had our time again, we would do things differently. That's not how God regrets, because, well, God doesn't make mistakes, and nor is he ignorant. He knows what's going to happen. And so he knew that when he created Adam and Eve, that they would sin. 
He knew that 10 generations in humanity would be so corrupt that the only solution would be to wipe them out. So in verse 6 says God regretted that he had made humans. It's not saying that God didn't see this coming or that God changed his mind about creating humans. It's telling us that God cares. God grieves human sin. It fills him with a deep sense of pain. The end of the verse says God is that God's heart was deeply troubled by man's sin. God's heart is troubled for the victims of sin in this world. He's troubled for those who experience the wickedness and violence in our world. He was troubled. He was grieved for Abel, who was killed by his brother. God grieves the Afghanis killed by suicide bombers outside the airport in Kabul. God grieves for the victims of sin, but he also grieves for the perpetrators. God's heart is deeply troubled by humans who refuse his gracious gift of life, who rebel against his good rule. It saddens him. It angers him. And so God decides to do something about it. The Lord saw, the Lord grieved. And then in verse 7, the Lord hands down his judgment. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will wipe away from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. If you've been in church for a while, uh, you've probably heard this story a thousand times. And I suspect that, like for you, like me, the severity of God's punishment might be a little bit lost on you. Make sure you get this. Here in verse 7, God is choosing to commit genocide against his own people. He's deciding to kill his image bearers, the creatures that he delights in. It's almost like a parent killing their own child. It's unthinkable. It is awful. And perhaps what's most unsettling about all this is that God hasn't lost control here. This is not God flying off the handle and doing something that he's going to regret. We might be able to comprehend that. We might even be a little bit sympathetic to him, like a, you know, like a dad who, in a moment of weakness, lashes out and then immediately regrets it. We could understand that. But here, the good and righteous God coolly and calmly chooses to wipe out every living thing on the face of the earth. It's not rash, it's not over the top, it's not a moment of weakness, it's the just judge handing down the sentence that every human deserves. That's how big a problem sin is. The wickedness that God saw on the earth is not something that he can turn a blind eye to. 
He doesn't see the corruption of the human heart as a small thing. It's something that demands justice. It's something that requires death. Because when God told Adam and Eve that if they ate the fruit, if they disobeyed him, that they would surely die, he wasn't bluffing. He was gracious to them, he was merciful, and he allowed them to live a bit longer. But in the end, they must die. There is no other way for their sin to be dealt with. Any lesser punishment would be unjust. It would be unfair. And so God makes up his mind to destroy the human race. I I hope that makes you uncomfortable. It should make you uncomfortable. God is wiping out all humanity except, of course, one family. Because in verse 8, Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9 says he was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and that like Enoch, he walked faithfully with God. Remember we saw that last week? Enoch, who walked with God, Noah is the same. He walks with God. Now, it's not that he's perfect. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, every human is born sinful. No one is righteous. But like Enoch, Noah strived to live in obedience to God. Noah deserved death, just like everyone else on the planet. But Noah found grace. He found favour. And so God warns Noah. He warns Noah about the judgment that is coming. He shows him the way of deliverance. In verses 13 to 21, God instructs Noah on what to do. He tells him to build an ark. He tells him exactly how big to make it. He tells him how to fill it up. He tells him how to prepare to live in it. He gives all these details. He gives him every necessary detail. The continuation of the human race depends on this. And luckily for us, in verse 22, we learn that Noah did Everything, just as God commanded him. If he hadn't, we wouldn't be here. But he did. He did everything just as God commanded. And that point is so important that it's repeated in chapter 7, verse 5. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. God had warned him, given him the way to salvation. And the only way to experience that salvation was to obey to believe, to trust in God's plan for salvation. There is no other way to be set free from God's judgment. Because the day was coming, and in verse 6 of chapter 7, as you flick over, the day of God's judgment arrives. God's terrible judgment on sinful humanity literally starts raining down on the earth. Now, we're not told much about what happened on the earth. We're not given much insight into what life was like for everyone else on the planet. We don't know how long it was before people started to realise they were in trouble. You can imagine scenes like those that we saw in Kabul airport last week. People clinging to the ark for life in a desperate attempt to survive. What we are told is that God's judgment 
was effective. In fact, in verses 21 to 23 of chapter 7, we're told it three times in a row. Have a look. Verse 21. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. In verse 22, it says it again. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in it, its nostrils, died. And then verse 23 tells you once more. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. I think the author is trying to make a point, right? Three times repeating that idea. There was no survivors, no mercy. There was no glimmer of hope. Every single man, woman and child that God had created was washed away. Only Noah was left. Only the ones that God had chosen were spared. Only those that trusted in God's rescue plan were preserved in the face of God's wrath. And only because God remembered Noah and his family in chapter 8 verse 1, only because God provided for them through the storm, did humanity survive the flood. Against the dark and gloomy sea of God's judgment, the ark shines brightly as the beacon of God's mercy. Because even in the terrifying climax of God's anger at sin, God did not give up on humanity altogether. Even though he saw and grieved that his own children were corrupt and violent and defiantly resistant to letting him be God. God was not ready to blow the full-time whistle on his people. He was not ready to withdraw his love and attention from his rebellious creatures. Not yet, anyway. But friends, one day he will. And as we come to think about what this ancient story means for us, the one Thing, one of the most important things that we can learn from the story of Noah is the pattern that it establishes for us. Because in the time of Noah, God saw a world filled with wickedness. God grieved at human sin. God decided to judge. God warned his people. God judged. And yet God preserved some people for himself. And friends, right now, Today, God is doing the same thing again. We are living in the times of Noah because the flood didn't fix the problem of sin in the world. The flood was never meant to be a solution. It restrained evil in the world. It stopped wicked people from hurting others with their wickedness. But as we'll see next week... The flood certainly didn't solve the problem of sin. Sin is just as much a problem after the flood as it was before. If anything, the flood shows us that something even more radical than all humanity being destroyed, 
Something even more radical than that is required to properly deal with our sin. And friends, just as God did in the time of Noah, God looks at our world and he sees how great the wickedness of humans have become. God looks at our world today and he sees the same things, doesn't he? He sees violence. He sees corruption. He sees people whose hearts are inclined towards evil all the time. He sees it out there in the world, but friends, he sees it in you. He sees the way that you care more about yourself than anyone else. He sees your pride. He sees your greed, your anger, your lust. He sees you loving money and loving power and loving control and loving freedom. He sees you loving all of those things and yet ignoring the one who gave them to you. God sees your sin and it grieves him. His heart is deeply troubled at your sin. He's saddened by the things that you think and say and do. It angers him that you go about your life as if you created yourself and are there to worship yourself. Your defiant rebellion makes him furious. And so, friends, God decided to do something about it. Acts chapter 17, verse 31 tells us that just like he did in the times of Noah, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. When Jesus Christ returns, God's wrath against his enemies will be unleashed. And it's terrifying. The flood shows us that it is terrifying. And friends, just like he did in the time of Noah... God has warned us. In Matthew 24, Jesus himself warns us that he will return at a time and hour unknown. And he says it will be just like it was in the times of Noah. Matthew 24, 38, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Friends, God is warning you, be ready. One day Jesus is going to judge sinful humanity. We don't know when, we don't know exactly how, but one day... God will call stumps on this creation. The world as we know it will end. You will need to give account. You will need to give account before God for your actions in this life. You will need to stand before the righteous judge who sees everything. That's a terrifying judgment. That is awful. But just like he did in the times of Noah, God's provided a way out. He's given us 
the instructions for his rescue plan. And yet even better, he's executed the plan. Remember I said before that the flood shows us that human sin requires an even more radical solution? It required the death of God's own son. By shedding his own blood, Jesus satisfied God's wrath at your sin. And so he has done everything for you to be rescued from sin. And so just like he did for Noah, God has told us exactly what we need to do to be saved from his judgment. It's nice and simple. You can say it in one sentence. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. No ark building, no zoo keeping. This trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and he will take God's terrifying judgment for you. Friends, Jesus is our ark. He's the only hope for humanity. He is your only hope. And so I want to leave you with two questions. They're nice and simple, but they're big ones. Are you on the boat? There is judgment coming. God is God sees your sin. He grieves at your sin. He will judge your sin. And there is one way for salvation. Noah did everything the Lord commanded. He trusted in God's plan for salvation. And so he was saved. Are you trusting in God's plan for your salvation? Are you on the boat? Are you trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Friends, if you're not yet... Do that today. Hear Jesus' warning. Judgment will come without... You you won't know that it's there. It'll just happen. Get on the boat today. My friends, if you're on the boat, praise God, you're saved. Nothing can take that away. That is amazing. Rejoice in that. But friends, who do you know that's not on the boat? Because the story of Noah, the story of God's judgment against sin is terrifying. And God's wrath against sin will be poured out on those that you know that are not trusting in Jesus. So friends, who do you know that's not on the boat? What will you do to help them get on the boat? Will you share the hope that we have in Jesus with them? There's two questions for us, two big questions, two questions that we need to pray about. And so how about we finish doing just that? Let's pray. Our Lord God, your judgment is terrifying. The fact that our sin deserves death is terrifying. The way that you enact your judgment on rebellious people like us is terrifying. But Lord, while your wrath is terrifying, your love and your grace and your mercy give us so much comfort. Lord, we thank you so much 
that you sent Jesus to rescue us from your own wrath, that you sent Jesus to rescue us from our own sin, from our rebellion, that in him you give us what we don't deserve and that you gave to him what we deserved, death. Lord, we thank you for that. We rejoice in that. I pray that you would help us each to trust in you for salvation. We, trust, we ask that you would help us to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins today and every day. But Lord, as we look around us, our friends, our neighbours, those that we work with, the people driving past right now, Now, Lord, we see people who are rebelling against you, who are facing your wrath. And Lord, that grieves us because it grieves you. Lord, we thank you for your patience, that you are giving us all more time to repent. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us to share this hope of Jesus with our world. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to speak of your judgment in a world that doesn't want to hear it. Lord, we know that too much is at stake for us to stay quiet. And so, Lord, give us boldness to speak the truth of your judgment, but also the glory, the the amazing truth, the good news of your salvation. Lord, help us to speak that into our world, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.